Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Ridge Church Podcast. If you'd like to learn more about us, check us out online at theridgechurch.net. Also, be sure to connect with us on Facebook and Twitter. Thanks for listening today. I was wondering, as I was preparing for the message this week, how many of us had probably read the book of Nahum or even knew it was in the Bible? Or maybe if you've read it, but you're like, yeah, I have no idea. It's some prophet, and I don't know anything about it, right? I really didn't know much about it, to be honest with you. There's, you know, I know I'm your pastor, and maybe I'm ashamed to, you don't want to hear this, but there are a lot of things in Scripture that I've not read and studied and don't know until I prepare this week. And so I am learning things as well, and I trust that I will, by God's grace, I'll continue to learn and, and uh, can see how all of it fits together for God's purposes and for His glory. So last week, Brian kind of jumped into Nahum, and he kind of talked about how it's the extension, it's the, kind of the sequel to Jonah and what's happening in, in Israel there and with Nineveh specifically. And he talked about kind of the attributes or the characteristics of God in chapter 1 and, and what a wonderful thing that was. And all of those attributes kind of came out. God is, is just, he's, he's sovereign, he's good, and right, all, he's jealous for us. He's not jealous of us, he's jealous for us. And so today, because chapters 2 and 3 um, are, are really just a, a further expansion upon what's happening and what God is doing and part of this prophetic thing. And so what I've decided to do, and that's why we didn't have a scripture read this morning, is that we're just going to kind of cover 1, 2, and 3 today, and we're just going to talk about why this book was written, why this... Um, small prophecy was put together that God obviously had put on Nahum's heart and revealed to him. So why did God use prophets in the Old Testament? Primarily to tell Israel when they were heading in the wrong direction, to warn them. As we said, I think Jonah was one of the only ones that warned a non-Jewish group of people that God actually in his grace, and his mercy, sent Jonah to Nineveh, to that people there, to the Assyrians, to be able to let them know that they would perish if they did not turn from their evil ways and repent. There's some question about when we talked about this a few weeks ago in Jonah, when they repented, and it says that they did, <clears throat> was that a repentance that led to salvation, as we would understand it, or was it human repentance? There is human repentance. There are things that we're sorry for that don't lead to salvation. And when we talk about a, a repentance that leads to salvation, what we're saying is, I've come before the Lord, I've acknowledged him as King of kings and Lord of lords and creator and sinless and resurrected, and I know that I am in desperate need of his grace and I cannot do anything. And so when I repent, I am saying I am wholly in need of you and your mercy and your grace. Otherwise, I will perish. Human repentance is, I'm sorry. I didn't, I didn't mean to do that. I don't want to do that. But, but it's not really before the Lord. When we see King David, he says in Psalm 51, I have, against you, Lord, I have sinned. Well, okay, he killed Bathsheba's husband, right? But David has a right understanding of repentance because our first thing about repentance is I've sinned against the Lord. And so here, Nahum is writing, and then the question becomes is, who is he writing to? We'll talk about that here in a little bit. There's not a lot of evidence that shows us, but there is some contextual things that we can look at. So here, Assyria is this massive military might and, and civilization, and it is coming down upon Israel. And at this time, Israel is in a, a divided kingdom. When I say, what's a divided kingdom? In, in 950 BC, uh, Israel, the, the people of God, kind of split. Judah became the kingdom of the south, the southern kingdom, and then Israel became the northern kingdom, and Jerusalem stayed with Judah in the south. And so the tribes were kind of split. Actually, it was Judah, then all the other tribes in the north. And they didn't get along. They didn't get along at all. And so what we see here is Assyria is coming down, and they're, they're coming down into Israel, and they're coming down and taking over and conquering them. Now, before we kind of go into the timeline a little bit, 
Because part of this is education. You know, preaching and teaching um, is, is somewhat, we're making much of God. We're, we're saying how beautiful and wonderful he is. And we want to proclaim Christ absolutely true, always. But part of it is, is really have an understanding. Because when we have a better understanding of history, of scripture, and all that God has done, we have a better appreciation for the plan of God and the salvation of God. And so why is God allowing the Assyrians to come down and conquer his people? Right? Because that's the kind of question that you have to answer before you can understand the, the prophecy that Nahum now, that God is giving Nahum. Because he's going to destroy the Assyrians, Nineveh, and ultimately their nation. God is. And so why is he going to do that? And yet, why is he allowing this to happen? I want to take you to the book of Kings, 2 Kings, actually, chapter 17. And we're not going to have time to go through all of this, but I just want to kind of put some context to this. 2 Kings 17, verses 14 and 15. But they would not listen. He's talking about Israel now, his people, God's people. But they would not listen, but were stubborn, as their fathers had been, who did not believe in the Lord their God. They despised his statutes and his covenant that he made with their fathers and the warnings that he gave them. They went after false idols and became false. And they followed the nations that were around them, concerning whom the Lord had commanded them that they not, should not do like them. You could read that to many nations, but you could read that to us today. You could read that to America, right? They would not listen. Church, even in the church, because I would say we're God's people, amen? We're, we're saints. If you're, if you're in Christ this morning, you're a saint. Even in the church, we struggle with listening and understanding, and we are stubborn because why? We want what we want. People in our country struggle to believe, choose not to believe. They despise the statutes. They, we despise holy living. We despise godly behavior. And yet we see that in Scripture, God is giving us warnings. They chased after false idols and became false. And oh, think of all the idols that we chase after in our culture today. Idols of material things, idols of relational things. Sometimes our idols are our children, our, our profession. It is our health. I mean, there's all sorts of things that we can idolize and begin to, to place and lift up above God. And see, here, what we're seeing is, is that Many times, if you read the Old Testament, especially here in Kings and, and Chronicles, it, it basically says, and, and so-and-so became king. And then it says, almost immediately after that, and all that they did was evil in sight of the Lord. In fact, most of the kings that, that rose up were always evil inside. the Lord. These were God's people now. And here he's speaking of Judah. He's speaking of the northern kingdom. But if we move down to verse 19 of chapter 17 of 2 Kings, it says, Judah also did not keep the commandments of the Lord their God, but walked in the customs that Israel had introduced. See, we were influenced by other people. As I was thinking about this this morning, maybe this isn't a good analogy, but we say what? Everything that starts in California makes its way across the country. We're influenced by the cultures of other people. That's why it's so important when we raise our children and, and parents that you decide how, what boundaries you put on your children about who they can run with and who they can't. I'm not talking about being snobby. I'm not talking about being unloving to, to kids around the neighborhood or their friends. I'm just saying that you have a responsibility because those people that they're hanging around are affecting what they think and how they act and what they say and what they believe. And that goes for social media. You know, it was, it used to be that we could just keep our children away from 
these three kids that cause trouble. And we should love those kids, and we should try and minister to those kids and and pray the gospel to those kids. But we have to be careful that those kids don't indoctrinate our child. But now we have social media. We have a constant avenue into their head, the world does, and to ours. This, This goes for adults as well. And the Lord rejected all the descendants of Israel and afflicted them and gave them into the land of plunders, their plunderers, until he cast them out of his sight. This is God's chosen people. He's casting them out because they are, and, and we see this over and over. It's the, it's the picture of Israel and their It's really the picture of humanity, but it is given to us through Israel, a people. They had everything. Paul says, you had the prophets, you had the law, you had the commandments, you had it all. And yet you still did not believe. I would say that's true for us today. We have it all. We have the whole body of scripture. We have archaeology. We have so much evidence. We see prophecy fulfilled. We see everything that's unfolding. We can see all of it. Whether you think we're in the end times or not, we are looking back over a wealth of information about who God is and what he's done in affirming his word. So, Jonah. Jonah was a prophet of the northern tribes. Somewhere around 760, we're not sure, could have been 10, 15 years one way or the other, he calls Jonah to go to Nineveh. And tells them that they need to repent. And so he goes. And, and we saw a few weeks ago that they repent and they move away. And, and I believe that many of them came to know God, the God of Scripture. And I believe that based on Matthew, 7, or Matthew 12, when it says there that, that Jesus says that in the last days the, you'll be ashamed because the men of Nineveh will rise up because they repented. And so I think, and we don't know for sure, that those people in Nineveh, many of them, are in heaven. We don't know. That's what I think from the context that Jesus talks about. But it doesn't take long for Assyria, and we don't know how long Nineveh kind of stayed repentful, but it doesn't take long, and what do we do? We drift back into our sinful nature. In 740, the Assyrians, you got to remember, we're talking B.C., so we're coming down as we're moving forward, okay? For those of you who don't understand that, right? In 740 B.C., the Assyrians' conquest of Israel, the northern kingdom begins. So Assyria now becomes to come down and begins to attack Israel, the northern kingdom. In 722, they take over the capital city of Samaria. In 701, they march now into Judah, which is where Jerusalem is. And they seize all the land. Assyria is just rolling over them. And why is this happening? Because of their disobedience. Because God is using Assyria to punish them. I know that's a hard thing for us to understand. And there's, but God is using Assyria to punish his people. And what you're going to see is then God is going to turn around and punish Assyria for attacking his people. (laughs) I'm not God. This is how God works many ways. And so they march, but by God's grace, they, they don't fully take, well, they, can't, they don't take Jerusalem. They siege, they, they put a siege around Jerusalem and, and they won and, and Hezekiah doesn't give and, and there's all these other things I won't go into, but they don't get Jerusalem. Now, ultimately, Hezekiah and, and the, the southern kingdom of Judah lose all basically all of Palestine, all of that land, and, and they don't govern it. And, and Jerusalem begins to pay a, a tax basically back to the Assyrians to function. It's called a vassal state now, right? They can function, but they have to pay dues. But the reason that is, is because they were going to surrender. They didn't know what to do. And Hezekiah prays and beseeches God. And finally, I believe it's Isaiah says, look, don't give. God is going to protect you. And it says that God sends an angel and one night kills 185,000 Assyrians outside of Jerusalem. 
Brian last week talked about that God is sovereign over all things. See, things like that and so many other things in the Old Testament and the New Testament, but as we study this, when we look at the Middle East today, while it is unsettling to say the least, and when we look at Russia, it's unsettling. I trust that God is in control of all of that. Not that we don't pray, not that we don't weep over certain things, not that we aren't just have a burden for things like that, and that it is tragic, but we know that God is in control. And somewhere around between 663 and 612, God gives Nahum a vision of the fall of Nineveh. Now, this is maybe a hundred years, depends on when he gets it, a hundred years before this is going to happen. This is probably at the height of, of the Assyrian Empire. And, and so can you imagine what, what God is giving Nahum? And, and if you're the prophet, you're going to write this down. You're going to tell your people that this is what's going to happen. And everybody's going to say, man, you have no idea what you're talking about. Can you see what's happening in the world? We've lost Judah, or we've lost Israel, we've lost Judah, we, we've maintained Israel or Ju Jerusalem a little bit, but, but we are defeated. And so why does he write this? Because God is giving him this. Because God is encouraging his people. In this devastating place, God is reaching out and saying, I will judge this. I will deliver you from this. And we're going to see that. So God has Nahum write this as a reminder and an encouragement to Judah and possibly to Israel. Not as a warning to Nineveh. God had already sent Jonah. Right? That had already taken place. I don't believe that this, this letter or this document was given and taken to Nineveh to say, hey, you guys are... You guys are sinful again. You need to repent again. No, this was been written for the Jews to say God is going to avenge us. Yes, he is. The Assyrians have exiled many of us, taken us into bondage, and we've spread and left. And so what's the big idea this morning as we start this? God's judgment will be eternal if we fail to repent. God's righteous judgment will be eternal if we fail to repent. So what we're going to do now is we're going to kind of quickly go through all three chapters. I just want to point some things out. This first one we're going to spend a little time on because I think it's so important. And I know Brian covered a lot of these things, but I want to just pull a few other things out of the text this morning as we study chapter 1. I want to show you multiple things. This first thing I want to show you is that God's promise, God promises divine judgment for his enemies. That's just, a, that's just all through Scripture, that God promises divine judgment for his enemies. Okay, so who's his enemies? Every one of us. Outside of Christ, every one of us is God's enemy. In fact, if you look at the New Testament, you look in uh, Ephesians chapter 2, it says, by nature, we were children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. We're all the same. We're all born to sin. We're all of the seed of Adam. And so God has a, a righteous, holy justice that we are due. I say it all the time. He wasn't unclear when he said, do not eat of that tree, because the day you eat of that tree, you will surely die. That's the judgment And so God promises divine judgment for his enemies. So we pick it up in Nahum chapter 1, verses 2 and 3. It says, The Lord is a jealous and avenging God. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger and great in power. And the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. His way is a whirlwind in a storm. And the clouds are the dust of his feet. So now, if you're a Jew and, and you're being reading this prophetic thing, right? They understand 
the awesomeness of who God is. They're, in their history already, they, they know what's happened, right? They know what's happened to Egypt, the Egyptian army. They understand the power of God, even though that they, it's so quickly, they understand the power of God. They know who he is, and they followed him, and then they leave the truth, and they rebel, and they, they chase after false gods and all sorts of things. And, and I want to say, and we've said this before, we want to say, well, I wouldn't have done that. Examine your life. I mean, we do it every day. We chase after false things. And we know more than anyone. It's this, this problem of the flesh. And clearly, we deserve judgment, but God has made a way. But what I want to do is I want to spend just a few minutes, and we could spend a whole message or two or three on this. I want to look at verse 2. It says, The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries and keeps wrath for his enemies. That's a very strong statement. This idea of wrath and vengeance. Because what I said in the announcements, because God is holy. When we sin against a holy, righteous God, there is a holy, righteous judgment that has to be leveled against us. It is right. It is right. If we look at what happened in Israel, just to use that as an example, we could use many things. And someone is slaughtering children and pregnant women. There's going to be a righteous judgment, even worldly, humanistically. But when we sin against a holy God, and, and it is not just once, but it is regularly, and he has given us life. He has given us all things for our pleasure and, and, and all of it. And yet we turn God has every right to be wrathful. Matthew chapter 3, verse 7. Here, John the Baptist, um, Jesus is coming to be baptized. And, and um, eventually here, he's actually um, with them. And, and actually, the Pharisees come out and, 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 and speak to John. And, and basically, it says, When he saw that many of the Pharisees, many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming uh, to his baptism, he said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Already this idea that there would be wrath to come was in the conversation. Paul picks it up in Romans 18.1. It says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And I'll say humanity there, so ladies, you don't get a pass. That's not just un We may have more or less, but it's humanity. The wrath of God is going to be revealed against the unrighteousness, right, and ungodliness of men, humanity. And then it goes on there, it says, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Because what happens is, is when we live in the fallen state, we want to, we're going to reject the truth all the time. Our flesh doesn't want to know the truth. I mean, when we read Scripture, how many of us, let's be honest, we come to the text and we say, oh, no, that can't be true. <laughs> like, right? I, in, in so many ways. Sometimes it's like, you know, I don't want you to have sex outside of marriage. I want the marriage bed to remain pure. And you say, oh, no, because love. Like, no, that can't be true. That had to be for then and not now. Oh, but this is monogamous. Yes, I know it's same sex, but it's monogamous. And it's, you know, no, no. Because we deny the truth. Paul says in Colossians 3, 5, and 6, he says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. First thing he says is sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. So the wrath is coming. We, there's a deserving divine judgment that's coming upon mankind. We see this all over the place. As I said a few weeks ago, we, we saw this in early on, right? We saw the judgment of, of the flood. Everything in the heart of man was evil. And so he floods the entire world and kills them all. And God is trying to say, this is, this is who I am. I'm holy and you are rebelling against me. And so when we get to the New Testament, we're so grateful because we understand if, if God is 
gracious to us and, and allows us to, to come to know him and puts his Holy Spirit in us, that we have a way of escape from this. But I want to read you Ephesians chapter 5, verse 5 and 6. Paul says it this way. He says, for you may be sure of this. I, man, if you have your Bible, I would underline that. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. And you say, well, Pastor Raleigh, I know you. You've, you've been sexually immoral in your, young, your, your youth. Yep. I've repented, and while I'm not perfect, and I am covered by the blood. And I don't say that in a proud situation. I'm saying, I'm, I'm saying in a, a needy situation, I, I, I cannot do this. I cannot live the perfect life. I cannot be sinless perfectly. I have to have something that's going to take my penalty because justice needs to be fulfilled. Because on there it says, let, let no one deceive you with empty words. Contextually there, this may not be exactly what he's meaning, but this idea that people are always trying to deceive us to say, no, that's not the truth. That's not the truth. Believe this. Believe this. And so badly, we, our hearts, our flesh wants to believe certain things. It sounds good. It sounds right. God is a God of love. He wouldn't do this or that. Surely he wants us to be happy. And none of that is true. I mean, yes, he wants us to have joy. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying when we start to build our own picture of who God is and then we begin to tell God who he is and what he wants from us, we are down a bad path. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Who are the sons of disobedience? At the beginning, all of us are. That's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2. We were all once sons of disobedience. Now in Christ, we're no longer sons of disobedience. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, he says, you once were this, but you've been washed. God has washed us in the blood. Verse 3, it says, the Lord is slow to anger and great in power, and the Lord will by no means clear the guilty. I think what we need to remember now, he is talking about Nineveh here. He's talking about Assyria. It's these, but, but remember that even though he's talking about a nation, he's talking about a city, and, and he's also, who makes up nations and who makes up cities? People do. The Lord will by no means clear the guilty. What's he mean by that? Well, I'm guilty. You're guilty. What do you mean he know my name's clear the guilty? Because as long as we stay guilty, we will not get a pardon. All sin will be punished. What do you think about that? My sin will be punished. Your sin will be punished. Every believer's sin will be punished. Every unbeliever's sin will be punished. The difference is, is that some of us in the world will die and be punished for our own sin. And some of us will accept the punishment that Jesus took for us. But sin will be punished. It was punished on the cross. For you as a believer today, your sin was punished. In Christ, the wrath of God upon his son was poured out. You know, that's the kind of stuff that as believers we should meditate on from time to time. Because that is so powerful and so important. That God would take on flesh and be punished for us. Nahum 1.6. Here Nahum says, who can stand before his indignation? In other words, basically if you think that you live a good life, you think that you're not sinful, you're not guilty, he says, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire. So if there's any idea of any pride in you, Nineveh, Assyrians, people 
in today's world. You will not be able to stand against his indignation. We will not be able to endure the heat of his anger unless we're covered in the blood of Christ. Every sin will be paid for, either in hell or on the cross. All right. Next thing I want to show you is that God can use judgment to bring correction. So here Nathan, as he's, Nahum, as he's writing, he, he's, he's basically saying that God is going to bring, he's, he's encouraging Israel, he's encouraging Judah here. He's saying, look, there will be a, God is going to come and, and, and conquer them. And no evil culture, no evil civilization is going to dominate us forever. God will put a stop to it. He will. And you think about that for a minute. If you study scripture, this is the first real major empire that begins to dominate the world, but you're going to see the Babylonians. You're going to see uh, Greece. You're going to see Rome, right? We, we talk about Rome all the time in the New Testament. All these huge nations, Persia rises up and all these nations, but not one of them will stand in the end, amen? Not one country, not Russia, not the United States is going to stand against God and be victorious. God will, every king and every government will kneel and be put under as a footstool to Jesus. But here in Nahum chapter 1 verses 12 and 13, he goes on now, and this is kind of a, a poem, and he's, he's back and forth. It's just this imagery of this beautiful imagery here. It says, thus said the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, here he's talking about the Assyrians, right? They will be cut down and pass away. Now notice what this next line says. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. Who's doing the afflicting of Judah? God is. I have afflicted you. Why has he afflicted them? Because they've been disobedient. He's allowed the Assyrians to come. And he says, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. And now what he does, they talk about encouraging news like, you know, right? It's like your parents saying, you know, yes, I've punished you, but I love you, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to now help you, right? He goes on there and says, and I will break his yoke. Whose yoke? Assyrians, the kings, the government. And I will break his yoke from off you and will burst your bonds apart. That's this, this thing that, that Israel is reading, the Jews are reading, they're saying that we have a, a holy, perfect God. He's going to come and he's going to be jealous and he's going to have vengeance and he's going to take his enemies and he's going to be wrathful and he's going to punish them for what they've done. And yet he's acknowledging that he's saying, no, I've punished you as well. I've afflicted you, but now I will break that bondage over you. And so you can see how this is an encouragement to the Jews. That's why God is having Nahum write this. Chapter 2, I'm not going to cover a lot of things here, but the thing I want you to see is that God can use judgment to bring total destruction and does bring judgment many times to bring total destruction. But sometimes it can bring correction. And so here in Nahum 1, he's, he's using the Assyrians and the judgment against Israel to bring correction. We see that all through Israel's history. But in two, I think we have a different picture. They've had a chance to repent, and they did, and now they're back to their, their ways. And so what does he say here? I just want to read a few things, and, and you can see once again how this is an encouragement to the Jews. It's, it's not, this, I don't believe this is going to, to Nineveh. It's not going to the people of Nineveh. This is saying this is what our God is going to do to the Assyrians in Nineveh. It's that the chariots race madly through the streets. He, Nahum has a vision about what's taking place possibly 50, 80, 100 years in the future. The chariots race madly through the streets. They rush to and fro through the squares. They gleam like torches. They dart like lightning. In verse 9, it says, Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end of the treasure or the wealth of all precious things. Basically, he's saying that and who's doing this, right? Who is, who is coming against them? It's a whole other thing we're not going to have time to go into. This is Babylon. God is using Babylon, another nation, to conquer Assyria. 
desolation or desolate, desolation and ruin, verse 10. Hearts melt and knees tremble. Anguish in all the loins. All faces grow pale. He's just saying, so he's, he's seeing this, the Babylonian and the, the Medes come in and they're going to destroy the city of Nineveh. And ultimately they're going to destroy and take over the kingdom of Assyria. And he says, hearts will melt and knees will tremble this, this day of anguish, right? Anguish in all their loins. Everyone's going to feel it. Every face is going to show it and grow pale. And then in 13, 2.13, it says, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. That's not a statement you want to hear, right? And I will burn your chariots in smoke, and the sword shall devour your young lions, and I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the voice of your messengers will no longer be heard. It is utter destruction. And where does it start? What precedes this? Unrepentance. It's, it's just a picture of, of God's righteous judgment. Right? He sent them Jonah. Right? I mean... I think that's part of this whole picture that, that God is putting together here for us today. He says, look, I'm, a, I'm slow to anger. I don't, I, I have patience. I have long suffering. I sent Jonah. I gave them time and they repented. Great. I'm, I'm, I'm willing. I'm, I'm a loving God. I'm good. But when you continue then to turn and revile against me, and I will tell you that the Assyrians were a graphic, brutal nation. I could have showed you some carvings and pictures. They, they hung people on posts, on spears. They sacrificed their children. There was all sorts of things. God can use judgment to bring total destruction. And I would say that in the same picture, this, this idea that judgment will end for many in eternal destruction when there's no repentance. Here, maybe someone repents. We, it doesn't say. The point is not that. The point is that God is showing that, that God is gracious and he wants people to come to, and he's made an offer. But when you, re, when you re resist that offer, when you reject that offer and you, you want to live for yourself, then the only thing left is God's righteous judgment. So what can you take away from that? God always makes good on his promises. God always makes good on his promises. And, and, and many of those promises we love, right? God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins for anybody who confesses, right? Amen. And he washes us and cleanses us from all unrighteousness. That's a promise. If we confess our sins and we trust in him and the Holy Spirit resides in us, we've surrendered our life to Christ, he is faithful, right? He always makes good on his promises. But, but you gotta remember that when he promises judgment... He's going to make good on that. When he says he is storing up his wrath for his enemy, he's going to make good on that. We, we don't want to be trifle with God. And we don't want to rename and, and say, no, he wouldn't do that because. No, he tells us what he's going to do. The day that you eat of the tree, you will surely die. It's clear. And then just as Nahum prophesied in 612 B.C., the Babylonians came and the Medes came and they destroyed Nineveh. I mean, this morning, folks, if, if you're here, and, and, and I know you're here because you're hearing my voice. I hate to say that. Brian said it a few times last week. I had to laugh. He says, what are we saying when we say that? That's evidence that God is who he says he is. Just that one thing. Nahum, this guy who spouts off and writes this thing and has this vision and shares it with his people and says, look, this is what's going to happen 50 or 100 years from now. Sure, right. The Assyrians, right. Yeah, exactly what happens. He comes and Babylon comes and defeats them. And In fact, I could go into many things in, in chapter 1 there that Brian talked about last week. It talks about rain and how it, rain helped. And when, and when they look at the history of things and the, the other external documents outside, we, it's all there. In fact, it says, um, in, in, in says that in here that, that uh, Nineveh will be hidden. And really, just until the, the 20th century, Nineveh was hidden. 
it was, it was destroyed and it was hidden. And only recently in the last, I think, 100 years has it been uncovered where they were. I mean, there's so many things just in this little tiny prophetic book that are true. And yet many people, A, don't read it, don't study it. And then even if they do, they don't believe it. Because we're stubborn, just like Israel and Judah. All the things they saw, all the things that God did before them and went before them and pillar of fire by night and a cloud by day and fed them in the wilderness and gave them the law and split the Red Sea and yet they did not believe. They would leave. Chapter 3, let's finish up. Here in chapter 3, I think what we're going to see is God's judgment comes on nations, cities, and people. Nations, cities, and people. Would you say right now that, or would you say that a couple hundred years ago, God had favor on the establishment of the United States? I would. Absolutely. I believe that God used the United States. We were, we weren't a Christian nation, but we were founded on biblical principles and all of that, and I believe God had favor, and I believe God has continued to have favor. I would argue, and I'm, I'm just, this is me now. This is not the word of the Lord. This is me. I think in the last 50 years, because of our sin, God's favor is being removed. And when people refuse and stop believing and trusting in God, and I would say in Christ, as the, the bearer for us, evil falls right behind. Right? When we turn away from that, evil follows right behind. Because when there is no moral, no, no thing of greater worship than myself, I will please myself in all sorts of things. I will have what I want, do what I want. Sexuality is all me, whatever I want. It's no, there's no limit to what I should have. And that's true in our daily life. And here, God is judging not only the city of Nineveh because corporately they were sinful. Look, not everybody in the United States is equally sinful. There's many that are faithful, many that believe, but our government and most of our nation is turning away from God. And so we get caught up in that judgment because he's going to judge cities, he's going to judge nations. And ultimately, he's going to judge people because people make up cities and they make up nations. Let's read just a couple verses in chapter 3. Behold, in chapter 3, verse 5, Behold, I'm against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and will lift up your skirts over your, skirts over your face, and I will make nations look at your nakedness and kingdoms at your shame. Obviously, because they, they wore, you know, they didn't have pants. They wore more of a, 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 a tunic that came over them. And God is saying, you know, symbolically, I'm going to lift that up and I'm, gonna, I'm just going to make you ashamed of who you are. I'm going to show everyone your nakedness. Nahum 3.18, it says, the shepherds are asleep. Your shepherds are asleep. Here he's talking, I think, to the, basically to the king or to the, of Assyria. Your shepherds are asleep, O king of Assyria. Your nobles slumber. Your people are scattered on the mountains with none to gather them. Verse 19, there is no easing your hurt. Your wound is grievous. Here I think he's specifically talking about because the, the Syrian king gets put to death much later. All who hear the news about you clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not come your unceasing evil. In other words, his unceasing evil as a, as a leader has touched and, and been evil and impacted so many lives and so many people. And so here, at the end of Nahum, he's just kind of sharing and reminding, encouraging, and saying this is what God, this is who God is. He's holy. He's, he has power over all things. He's jealous. He's, he's vengeful. He's just. Brian covered all those things so well last week. And, and then he's going he's gonna, to, what's he going to do? He's going to come and he's going to let Israel know that he's going to remove the, the bond or the yoke around them. And he's going to use some judgment to bring correction to them. 
Ultimately, he's going to totally destroy the city and the people and even the king. As we close, I want to take you to one verse back in Nahum 1, 1 1-7. Here's what I want to leave you with today because I know it's been a heavy topic and, and, you know, wrath and judgment and leave you with this. The Lord is good. A stronghold for a day of trouble. I think we have some days of trouble right now, right? He knows those who take refuge in him. He knows you. You say, but, but my heart is, you know, fickle. I, I've trusted in Christ. I, I, I'm a believer, but man, I'm struggling here and I'm struggling there. God knows you. He knows that you've taken refuge in him. I want, I want to read you um, a quote from Charles Spurgeon. It's pretty long, but he's addressing in a message, I think this is in a message of his, um, this word knows, right? Because it's intimate. God knows you. He's numbered the hairs on your head. Every day he's put forth, right? He knows from eternity past. Charles Spurgeon. Once more, dear friends, this word know here means loving communion. God knows us. He knows our prayers and our tears. He knows our wishes. He knows what we are not what we want to be. But he knows what we do desire to be. He knows our aspirations, our sighs, our groans, our secret longings, our own chastenings of spirit when we fail. He has entered into it all. He says, yes, dear child, I know all about you. I have been with you when you thought you were alone. I have read what you could not read, the secrets of your own heart that you could not decipher. I have known them all. And I still know them. Charles Spurgeon is saying, look, if you have a relationship with God, he knows you. He has paid the price for your sin through Christ. And you can rest because God knows your heart. Now, that doesn't mean you can go sin willfully. No, we should put that to death. But we will not be perfect. And Christ has died for that. And so when it says take refuge in him, it means trust in him. Right today we can see that very clearly because we take refuge in Christ. Christ is our rock. He is our shelter. He is our refuge. We take shelter in him. The whole idea that, that the breastplate of, of righteousness in the armor of God that Paul talks about. We are hidden. We take shelter in his righteousness so that when we stand before God, he does not see us. He sees his son, and he sees that his son paid the price for us. Him who knew no sin became sin for us. So what's your next step this morning? Escape God's wrath by turning away from your sin and placing trust in Christ. I know that sounds so elementary, but it is the foundation of the gospel. Turning away from our sin, not trusting in ourself, and putting our trust in Christ. I'll leave you with this last verse Paul says in Romans 5, 9, and I'll pray. Since, therefore, we now have been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. This morning, as we close, I hope today that if you are not in Christ this morning, that you will ask God to save you, that you will cry out to him. You will see and that God has made a way, but I will tell you that do not, do not mock God. Do not trifle with him. He is going to be good on his word, either direction. 
He's going to judge those who will not repent and yield. But he will save mercifully, graciously, those that repent and turn to Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, today as we close out our time together, Lord, I am reminded even here as we studied the book of Nahum of my own sin. On a regular basis, I am prideful. I am selfish. I can be slothful and lazy. I can choose my own ways. And and Father, help me to continue to turn away. Help us as your children continue to turn away from our flesh and give way to the spirit that you've put in us. Father, we are needy. We come needy to you this morning. We are so dependent upon the work of your son that you would take on sin for us, that you would die in our place. Father, with all that we know, all the history, all the prophecy that has been has been revealed and is being revealed in in our time, even right now, on our screens, at home, on TV. We see our world turning. We see our nation turning away from you. Father, help us to remain faithful. Father, we know that you will use our faithfulness for your good and for your glory. And that others will, You will use our faithfulness to reach and to call others to yourself. Help us not to grow weary in doing good, for we have not resisted to the point of death yet. Lord, prepare us for a time as this that we are in, to live for you unashamedly, lovingly, graciously, but boldly. Father, I thank you for your church. I thank you for this body of believers that you have allowed me to be a part of. Help us to honor you with all that we do. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thanks again for joining us today. If you have questions about this message or about the Ridge Church, you can contact us at info at Have a blessed day.